0: Our scripture for this morning comes to us from Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. Listen now for the word of the Lord. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about five thousand. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem, with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus, who is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the boldness of the disciples. And God, thank you too that they were willing to do the right thing and to speak up and to tell the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's it's always difficult to follow Sarah's uh, godly play stories because they're so good and they're so captivating that when I get up here and I'm I'm ready to preach um, I I worry that I won't be as captivating as as Pastor Sarah was so uh, forgive me if I'm a little nervous so during the first century there was this um, this practice that is actually carried on through monastic communities and. And we talked about this in our adult education class this morning, and that was the tradition of structuring days around prayer. So there would be uh, morning prayers, usually three hours after waking up at the temple during this time, so nine o'clock. And then at noon, there would be noontime prayers, and then there would be midday prayers at 3 p.m. or thereabouts. These were, this was called the ninth hour. And at the beginning of our story in Acts here, we're kind of coming in at the conclusion in the verses that we read today. But at the beginning of the story, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour. This is the final time that they'll be praying. These are evening prayers. And then after this, everyone will go home and eat their meals and be with their family and rest so that they can wake up and go about their business the next day. Well, Peter and John are doing what a lot of people are doing, and as they're walking up, they're going through the beautiful gate. And at this beautiful gate, there's a certain person who has been lame since birth sitting at the gate. Now, this person who's been lame since birth sitting at the gate is pretty smart to sit here and to ask for alms because it was typically only the pious, the most religious of the religious, that would go to these evening prayers, really all the prayers throughout the day because the the law didn't require anyone to go to the temple to pray except maybe at high festivals and in feast days. But on a regular, ordinary day, it wasn't required. And so the pious of the pious, the most righteous would come. And as you know from reading your Bibles, there's a lot of passages about giving to those that are in need. And so this person who's been lame since birth that's sitting by the gate is pretty intelligent. To sit there and to beg, to ask for money, for bread, really for anything that anyone might offer. As Peter and John are walking up and they see this person who's been lame since birth sitting there, they notice that he's asking for money. And he's probably not talking to Peter and John when he asks. But he just wants anyone to listen, anyone that's walking by. And there, there's probably crowds coming, but anyone, will you help me? Do you have any spare change? And it's at this moment that Peter and John look at him. They make eye contact. There's a connection made. And I imagine in that moment that probably the person who had been lame since birth was a little bit confused because... I mean, how many times have you walked by someone that's homeless or asking for alms on the street, even today, and how many times have you just walked by them? Or actually, you, you know that they're asking you for something, and maybe they've made eye contact, but you, you turn away. <laughs> and you don't want any part of that, you just want to move and get that over with this is what this person who's begging at the gate is likely dealing with on a day-to-day-to-day basis. So you can imagine how strange it is to him when Peter and John stop and make eye contact and Peter says something like, look at, look at me. What do I have to offer you? I don't have any money. I've wondered really how this person begging felt because in those moments, you know, Some people have called people like this hidden from society. We literally choose not to see them. We don't want to look at them. We don't want to interact with them. And this does something to a person over time where probably this person begging doesn't expect any human interaction at all. Maybe someone will throw a coin, yes. Maybe someone will have a little bit of leftover food and will toss it at them. But there's likely not going to be community interaction, especially around the temple, because... This person who's been lame since birth is technically unclean. He's not allowed to go through the gate. He's not allowed to be a part of the worshiping community. He is broken, and he should not be communicated with, dealt with. He shouldn't be around people. And so I've often imagined what it was like to hear someone listening to him and then speaking to him. He probably paused and was like, oh, gosh, they're... (laughs) they're talking to me. And Peter says it again. He says, "Look, I I don't have I don't have anything to give you. I don't have money. I don't have bread. Look at me, look at my friend John. We're we're broke." "But what I do have I'm going to give to you." In the name of Jesus Christ, Peter says, "Stand up and walk." And then Peter reaches out his hand and they, they lift him up and they kind of give him a second so that his, his legs can get their strength under them and, and, and it says his ankles are given the power to sort of hold his weight. And this person who's been lame since birth that has never walked before suddenly is, is standing and realizes that not only can he stand but he can, he can walk. And suddenly he's healed. Now this it's a pretty big moment in his life. And, and for someone that hasn't, you know, ever walked, I, I can imagine that he's feeling pretty good. And so he, he decides that he's not going to sit at the gate and beg anymore, even though he probably needs money. He probably needs food. He's going to do the thing that he's always wanted to do, I think. And that is, he's going to not sit at the gate. He's going to go into the gates. And he's going to pass through the courtyards. And he's going to enter the sanctuary. And he's going to worship with the people. But as he's doing this, you know, it, it, I, I get this kind of funny image. Like, he's, he's never walked before, and now that he's walking, he doesn't just want to walk in a boring way. He wants to run and he wants to leap and he wants to dance and, and sing God's praises because of what's been done to him. And so as he's going into the gate and everyone's getting ready for these evening prayers and the day is winding down, here is this person who's been lame since birth that everyone sort of knows because he sits in the same place and he's walking into the sanctuary, jumping and dancing and calling a lot of attention to himself. And so naturally a crowd forms around and is asking questions like, what's, what's this guy doing dancing? What is this guy doing dancing during evening prayers? This is not the hour of dancing and leaping and shouting to God. This is the solemn hour of prayer. And so a crowd forms around him and around Peter and John. And Peter, who is never one to miss an opportunity to preach, sees the crowd forming. And begins to teach them he begins to answer their questions and their their question is essentially all of our questions how does someone who hasn't been able to walk since they were born suddenly able to walk how does that happen and so Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd and he says to the crowd look you want to know how this can happen you want to know how all these things can happen I'm telling you it's by the power of Jesus that's how this occurred. And he goes on. He has more words. He's a good preacher. He, he says the thing over and over again until you're, you're kind of tired of hearing it, right? But he makes this point. Well, it wasn't just a crowd of people going to pray that were listening, but of course in the temple area there would be religious authorities that were listening as well. And, you know, they probably were getting ready for everyone to enter so that they could begin the evening prayers and they noticed that people weren't congregating where they were supposed to. They were actually on Solomon's porch outside the temple a little bit and they were all gathered around this person who was jumping up and dancing and then this other guy who seemed to be preaching. You know, it wasn't the hour of preaching and dancing again, it was the hour of prayer. So they came over and they started to investigate. And the religious authorities are listening to Peter stand up and talk, and they probably recognized him right away as one of Jesus' disciples. And if they didn't recognize him right away, it only takes a few minutes for Peter to start preaching for them to realize, oh, (laughs) here we go again. Now you have to remember that in the temple community, Jesus was not very liked or appreciated. In fact, they wanted Jesus gone. And so to have a disciple of Jesus standing up, preaching about Jesus within the temple... That's a big, big no-no. And they don't really know what's going on. The religious authorities just know they do not want this to happen. They want it to go away. The reason they had Jesus put to death was so that they didn't have to put up with this. And this is part of a bigger problem, actually, with the temple at the time. So the, the temple and the religious authorities had been occupied by the Roman army and the Roman government. And so they really didn't govern themselves other than, you know, the, the Romans saying to them, yes, you can govern yourselves. But it's really by the, the Romans that they were governed. And the Romans had a unique way of governing. They used fear. And they used the power of violence. They used intimidation. And essentially what they said to the the religious authorities was, look, you can continue to worship. We don't really care about your religion. Keep doing whatever you do in there, but do us this favor. Keep the peace, all right? I don't want any uprisings. I don't want any factions forming. I don't want any dissent against Caesar in Rome. Keep the peace, and you all can continue doing what you're doing. Well, as many of us know from... Sitting in church for so many years, uh, Jesus was not necessarily a keeper of the peace. (laughs) Jesus sometimes brought um, more problems with him than he solved, especially if you're looking at it from the perspective of the temple. And so with Peter up there preaching again about Jesus, with uh, him saying that, you know, the resurrection was real and that the power of Jesus was here. This was going to upset not only the religious authorities, but probably the Romans too, and it would threaten the peace of the whole community. So the religious authorities grab Peter and John, they arrest them, and they throw them in prison. Now, the text says that it was actually pretty late when they arrested Peter and John, and they really didn't know what to do with them, so they waited through the night and the next morning they all gathered together and they're deciding what they're going to do what's going to happen to Peter and to John you know it's at this point that as readers as listeners to this story we might be wondering too what happens to Peter and John And the authorities, you know, they they start talking and they can't really figure out what to do because, one, they don't even know if anything has been done that's wrong or against the law. And actually it hasn't. And just to spoil the whole story for you, they're going to let them go. But it's easy for us to get caught up in the climax here of what is going to happen. And then after we learn that they're going to be released, it's easy for us as we listen and we read to sort of think, wow, that's awesome. They were released, and we, we want to celebrate when actually nothing wrong was done, and them being released is the most natural outcome that should happen. It's what should take place. In fact, it's the bare minimum of what should happen. Peter and John are going up to pray. They start answering questions of people because someone's been healed. All of this happens not through them, they say, but through the power of God. And it's evident, the text says, to everyone around. So, of course, they should be let go. Of course, they should be set free. Of course, this is what's going to happen. But we tend to want to celebrate even though we know what should have happened. The world is a pretty broken place when we have to celebrate the bare minimum of what should occur. The world is a broken place when we're celebrating verdicts of what seems very, very obvious to most of us. This week, Derek Chauvin was found guilty for the murder of George Floyd. And I saw and heard so many people celebrating this, and hey, that's, it's fine to celebrate that, but there were many others on the other side of the camp that were saying, you're celebrating justice in a system that claims to be just. And I think what we need to acknowledge is that when we have to celebrate justice, when we have to celebrate a court <laughs> confirming what we all saw with our own eyes, and we have to celebrate that, the world's broken. We're not in a good spot. Malcolm X once said that You stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six, it doesn't fix anything. You pull it out nine more inches, it still doesn't fix anything. The goal is to heal the wound, right? The goal is to heal the wound. And some other people have added, it's figuring out why you're stabbing someone in the back in the first place, right? It's easy for us to get caught up in what does look like a tiny victory for justice. But we have to remember that we're only talking about doing the bare minimum this week. That it was very obvious that George Floyd was murdered. It's very obvious to all of us that what happened should have happened. And the jury seemed to think the same thing because they were were done deliberating like that. But I want to say it again, and I I just want to put this point home. When we are celebrating the bare minimum of what should happen, it tells us a lot about the world we live in. And there are a lot of people that are questioning whether racism is real. There are a lot of people questioning whether there's systemic violence against black bodies. There are a lot of people questioning a lot of things that seem very, very Obvious. And when we live in the world where reality does not match up to our decisions and the court's decisions, it's a very dark place. And so I'm glad that justice has been done. I'm glad that reality is aligning once again. But we still have a lot of work to do. We can't really take the time to celebrate, right? We Sort of like Peter and John in this moment where the the thing that happened did happen, great. How are we going to stop that from happening in the future now? How are we going to change our world to become more like the kingdom of God? And It might be easy for many of us to be worried at this point that the courts really... Uh, have the potential to not act justly. And in fact, we've seen that time and time and time again. It might be easy for us to get discouraged that we're all celebrating what was very obvious, but I want us to remember this too that the same spirit that was moving during the time of Peter and John, the same spirit that disrupted an entire culture of the religious authorities, of the Romans, the same spirit that was working in them and through them is here with us today. And it's very clear to me after this verdict that that spirit is actively on the move working through protesters, working through the church in some cases, working through organizers on the grassroots level, working through anyone willing to answer the call. And we can take comfort in that. And no matter how tiny amount of justice this is for us, it's still being done. And hey, that's a good thing. The kingdom is coming even if it still seems like it's a long way off. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for her movement in and through us. God, I pray that we would be willing to answer the call wherever we are. God, we would not settle for the bare minimum, that, God, we would continue to work to bring your kingdom to earth. In Jesus' name, amen.